This is the Mormon Expression Podcast. Find us on the web at mormonexpression.com. Okay, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. We're here tonight with uh, Tom. How you guys doing? We have two uh, special guests, two great guys to take time out to talk to us tonight. First of all, we have um, Newell G. Bringhurst. Uh, Newell has a Ph.D. and has recently retired from 25 years as an instructor of history and political science at the College of Sequoias in Visalia, is that how it's spelled? By Visalia, California. Visalia, California, where he has lived with his wife, Marianne, and their daughter. Newell's the author or editor of numerous books, including Saints, Slaves, and Blacks, Ex- Esca- Excavating More and Past, the new um, his- Histography. His- historiography. Oh, you're going to have to help me. Of the last half century. Yeah, the new, his- yeah right, the new historiography, historiography of, uh, of the new Mormon history historiography. I, yeah, I can't remember the exact title. I, Funny, I don't, I, I don't have it right in front of me. But uh, <laughs> you write them, don't read them. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a reference work, and they, you know, it's, it, it deals with the, uh, the way that various interpretations of various aspects of Mormon past have evolved uh, within the context of the so-called new Mormon history. That 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 is the the increased professionalization and and scholarship that that has developed uh, since about the 1950s over the last uh, half century. Great, and uh, one that I read just a few months ago, Reconsidering No Man Knows My History, and the one we're focusing on tonight, Scattering of the Saints, Schism Within Mormonism, and the Mormon Quest for the Presidency. Um, uh, you're still an active member uh, uh, and a past president of both the Mormon Histor- History Association and the John Whitmer Historical Association. New up. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not an active practicing Latter-day Saint. I guess I should point that out. I'm a <laughs> member of record, although I'm not, I'm, I'm not currently active practicing Latter-day Saint, although I, I come out of the Utah Mormon tradition. Well, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we also have John C. Um, Hamer. Uh, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Hamer, that's correct. John C. Hamer, Okay. Uh, you reside in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and currently the executive director of the John Whitmer Historical Association. And for those who aren't familiar, that association is backed or kind of derived or has its roots in the community of Christ, the reorganized church. Is that right? That's right. So essentially, it's the Midwestern version of MHA, the Mormon History Association. Okay. And you're an independent researcher, historian, and map maker. Um, you're the author and editor of books such as Northeast of Eden, a historical atlas of Missouri's Mormon country, the atlas of Mormon history, which is uh, forthcoming. Is that right? Yeah, I, that, that one is <laughs> long forthcoming. I've ended up putting that project off a little bit as, as I've um, been working on some other books. So the, 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 current, the most recent uh, book that I have my name on is uh, I did the illustrations for uh, history of the Kirtland Temple. We're coming out with a new illustrated history of the Community of Christ that'll be out in April, and then I'm also this year going to do uh, another edited work um, on the Strangite Church. Great, and of course um, you collaborated with uh, Newell Bringhurst on the book Scattering of the Saints: Schism Within Mormonism, 
and you've also uh, written Strangites, the Great Lake Mormon, Ex- the Great Lakes Mormon Experience. Right, that's a forthcoming, like I say. Okay, great. So, uh, welcome to the both of you. Well, why don't we uh, just kind of start out with uh, your work, Scattering of the Saints, um, Schism Within Mormonism, and tell us, maybe give us sort of an overview of that work. Well, basically an edited work consisting of a series of, of essays by uh, different authors, uh, and uh, the, the, the range of authors includes uh, uh, people that are either affiliated or, or have some kind of tie with uh, Utah Mormonism or Midwestern Mormonism, and some of them are, 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 are scholars that don't have an affiliation with either uh, tradition, and uh, so... Uh, uh, they deal the, the the individual essays in the volume deal with different uh, schismatic uh, expressions of the uh, Latter Day Saint movement or the Mormon um, movement as founded by Joseph Smith in 1830. And uh, it does, you know, I, I should I hasten to point out that it doesn't cover all of the uh, schismatic groups because there have been over 400 schismatic groups that have emerged from the original church founded by Joseph Smith uh, 1830. But it does deal with uh, most of the major uh, ones, at least touches on them. That's probably 400 and counting, I would suppose. <laughs> 400 and counting. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's very true, because the schism is still taking place. A lot of people probably are, aren't even very aware that there's more than one kind of Mormon. Usually, you know, the LDS Church is so well known uh, that it, there's only like some, even among some Mormons, only kind of a vague awareness that there may be, uh, you know, reorganized Mormons of some kind somewhere. The Community of Christ uh, being the former reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then also fundamentalist Mormons have started to make the news, and so there's started to be an awareness that there are all these other traditions, but the traditions go right all the way back to the very beginning. Um, even in Joseph Smith's lifetime, there were numerous uh, and also attempts to found kind of reform Mormon churches while he was alive. So just today, um, if, if I understand right, the community of Christ, the, the membership is around a few hundred thousand, is that right? Well, it's about uh, around 200,000, and that's that's an approximate ballpark figure. Isn't that right, John? Which is about two hundred thousand. Yeah. And nobody else even approaches that size, do they? Of, of no. the other schismatic groups, right? No, so then I there's mean, a couple in the in the whole universe. There's um, the LDS Church, which is in the millions, Community of Christ, which is in the hundreds of thousands, and then the next size down, there are uh, about not quite a dozen different churches that have in the kind of eight to ten thousand range or six to ten thousand range, and then. And then it gets a lot smaller really fast. And so really there's only, um, we talked about 400, there's maybe 100 that are today around and large enough to field at least one congregation. So people who can all get together and, and meet in church. So some of them are as small as that. And of course, then it gets all the way down to just individual believers who, you know, aren't in communion necessarily with anybody else besides themselves. So schism sort of goes almost all the way back to the beginning, at least to Kirtland, doesn't it? Well, it goes actually back to the actually to 1830 and the founding of the church in uh, New York, and um, and 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 the, yeah, the earliest movements that that manifest themselves are are within months after 
the formation of, of uh, the so-called Church of Christ. That's what the original name of the LDS Church was. It was originally known as the Church of Christ. And uh, almost immediately, there were dissidents, their individuals that split off and said that they were founding their own uh, separate groups. And that, that was present from the very beginning. So there's this, there was a, almost this inherent centrifugal uh, force within the structure of Mormonism itself as founded by Joseph Smith. And it, it seems to me that the earliest revelations Joseph Smith was receiving were sort of anti-schismatic also, containing the revelatory power in the in the hierarchy. Yeah, well, the revelatory power within him, but, you know, the and that is actually, ironically enough, one of the uh, causes of schism, the fact that uh, Joseph claimed to be a, a, a revelator to receive revelation directly from God it 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 uh it was one of those things where other people said well if Joseph Smith can receive revelations why can't we receive revelations and there were uh many of the early uh dissident people who broke away claimed the same type of revelatory power that Joseph Smith was claiming so the the uh the tradi- the prophetic tradition in a way helped to spawn uh you know schism even though uh, Joseph uh, you know tried to Say well, I'm, I'm, I have the superior power to receive revelation. He he was never able to completely, uh, you know, uh, legitimize that to the point where other people were intimidated not to receive revelation. And so, in a sense, when he tried to use it as a means of enhancing his power, it it ironically would have just the opposite effect. Other uh, dissidents would come forth and claim uh, similar powers, and so that the revelatory, uh, as we point out in our introduction, uh, that was one of the causes of schism. This prophetic revelatory tradition within Mormonism. I'm just going to say, as a, and as a, in, a, in the opposite end, um, having a prophet also um, caused schism because, as uh, time went on and Joseph Smith was constantly revealing new things, um, his his part of the movement, his, uh, the we call the main line of the church, was continuously evolving. And so people who signed up in 1830 and joined, they, by the time 1835 rolled around, Mormonism was very, very different from what they had first um, been attracted to. And then by the time 1844 rolled around, things were really different from the way it had been in 18... And so all along, there were constantly people who, you know, wanted to go back to... You know the kind of Mormonism that they first encountered, and that attracted them to the church in the first place. Yeah, we just um, last week we recorded an issue on the um, expositor, and that was one of the things they put in there that they wanted to go back to the way things were in right. an expositor in Nauvoo. And of course, the expositor yeah, and, was and, the and organ was, of a reformed Mormon church. I mean, that was yeah. they. So you've got this uh, church that's continually evolving and changing. I mean that that. That, as John says, that that really was a a, a nature because Mormonism didn't stay static or didn't attempt to uh, say these are the absolute tenets in which we believe. Uh, you know the the fact that uh, you know plural marriage, for example. I mean, here it, it, Joseph Smith denounces it and condemns it. it. It's condemned and denounced in the Book of Mormon, but yet by uh, by the time uh, that he comes forth with the with the uh, Doctrine and Covenants 132, which commands plural marriage, that's at complete variance of what's in the uh, in, in, in in the Book of Mormon. That probably be the most extreme example of a a, a teaching or or an a, a tenet of Mormonism that evolves and in fact uh, goes 
in a completely different direction. Here's a question, since we're kind of leading up to the Nauvoo Expositor and that whole event. Um, is it true that uh, most of the schisms actually happened after Joseph Smith's death? Isn't it that, that period between 1844 and approximately 1860 when most so of the... Go so ahead. The, yeah, the biggest, there's, two, there's a couple big events. So the first major event is 1837 with the collapse of the church in Kirtland. So with the failure of the bank, with the whole, uh, you know, half the original apostles, uh, even more of the high council, which at the time was a more important institution than the than the apostles, all of these guys were all disillusioned with what had happened with the bank and everything else like that. And so there was a that was that led to a major episode. So all the witnesses, for example, between between the uh, collapse of the church in Kirtland. And then the following year, the um, the Mormon-Missouri War and the expulsion from Missouri, that led to a whole bunch of different churches being uh, being born, reform, attempts to reform Mormonism. But then, like you say, after that moment, the um, the huge, you know, the, excuse me, that has survived to this day, uh, the next episode was 1844. So who would be Joseph Smith's successor? And, and, and the failure of Joseph Smith to designate a clear successor... Uh, was a very, very uh, a, very, uh, a, a major factor in the splintering and the fragmentation that, that took place within Mormonism. His his failure to designate who would succeed him in case uh, something did indeed happen to him, and and that's why you have and, and one, one writer, I think it's Steve Shields, who's an expert on on uh, schism, has called this the era of fragmentation, specifically the period between. 1844, Joseph Smith's death, and the coming together and formation of the reorganized church in 1860 was a was this period of of, of uh, critical fragmentation in which, uh, according to another writer, at least 14 major expressions of Mormonism manifested themselves during this period. I think that uh, following Joseph Smith's death, there's that's probably one of the biggest um, events there. Why don't you? Maybe John Hammer walk us through a little bit with James Strang and the creation of the RLDS Church a little bit. Sure. So, um, so immediately with uh, Joseph Smith's death, the two major rivals um, are Sidney Rigdon and Brigham Young, and um, the other person that would have been involved in that would have been William Marks, who was the presiding, um, uh, the president of the. Of the central stake, but he sided with Rigdon. So, so right away, there, there's that rivalry. Um, Young, uh, Brigham Young is able to convince um, the people at headquarters to back him. Uh, Sidney Rigdon leaves the city and reorganized church in Pittsburgh, and so he starts to gather most of all of the dissenters and everybody around him. But um, as often happens when people uh, set up a schismatic church or a new organization, and they decide to go back to some earlier form of Mormonism. They wherever they wherever they decide something went off the rails, um, you you start to go back and back and back, and you you start throwing things out, and you can't ever decide when to stop. And so at a certain point, Sidney Rigdon's organization almost entirely dissolves and atomizes, and almost all of these guys get thrown off in different directions, and there start to be lots of different rival claimants. Um, kind of at this moment, uh, a very unexpected uh, uh, claimant happens in the form of James J. Strang, who 
uh, is a relatively recent convert uh, to the church who lives up in the Wisconsin Territory. And um, he announces that, that, uh, that at the moment of Joseph Smith's death, an angel appeared to him and ordained him to be Joseph Smith's successor. And then he also produced a letter which he said uh, was from Joseph Smith designating him to be the successor. And so um, this is a kind of a startling claim for a lot of people. They didn't, they, most people don't initially think anything of it, but once he starts to um, demonstrate uh, prophetic abilities, uh, it starts to impress people. So he finds a set of plates, he translates those. Uh, there's all sorts of other things that he does, and he starts rallying um, lots of uh, these core leaders, uh, dissenters especially, anybody who doesn't really like Brigham Young, uh, start to rally around him, and then that, and that, that becomes the strongest um, rival organization. James Strang then ultimately um, uh, moves to Beaver Island, where he um, reestablishes some of the uh, that Joseph had done in Nauvoo, including um, plural marriage and uh, establishing the kingdom of God on earth, and so he's crowned king, um, and he has his own kind of very successful Mormon kingdom, but then it ultimately falls prey to the same kind of uh, problem that the Mormons faced in Missouri and Illinois, where the neighbors, uh, the Gentiles on the neighboring island, uh, attack him. They, um, it's some, uh, he Strang gets assassinated, all the people get thrown out, and, um, and the church essentially dissolves. And then uh, it's continued to exist to this day, but in a very, a very small, small form. Uh, relatively, there's only about 200 Strangites left. And so, uh, in the meantime, then uh, there's been lots and lots of Midwestern Mormons who um, kind of find themselves without a church. They most primarily these people have been opponents of polygamy. They've been upset that Brigham Young came out as uh, openly practicing, and they also oppose James Strang. And so these people um, are looking for a new leader, and they hope it will be Joseph Smith's son. Uh, they people try to persuade Joseph Smith's son to uh, to take over as, uh, as his father's role. He won't do that, he says, unless uh, he feels called by God. There's no point he thinks in in uh, claiming you're a prophet unless you feel that you have been called to do so. And then ultimately, in 1860, he. Um, reports that he has had that manifestation, so he comes forward and um, is ordained prophet of what becomes the reorganized church. Now, there are accusations and back accusations about the ordination of, um, or the blessing that um, his father, Joseph Smith, gave to him when he was young. Can you talk a little bit to that? Well, um, there, there, yeah, there, there's controversy because they've never been able to produce uh, a definitive uh, copy of the actual blessing, although that was, <laughs> as, as you might recall, that was one of the documents that Mark Hoffman actually concocted, and, and uh, it, it, uh, it, it raised a lot of uh, eyebrows when, uh, you know, when Hoffman uh, emerged, but there, there, there are, you know, the, the uh, RLDS, or today the Community of Christ, uh, strongly believe that uh, Joseph uh, Sr., or Joseph, Joseph Smith Jr., Designated his son Joseph Smith III uh, to be his his successor, whereas uh, Utah Mormons, of course, uh, re- re- reject that claim because they said there's no, uh, you know, documentary or definitive proof that that indeed uh, was the case, and and so 
the reliance is often on the recollections of others who uh, who, who who make that claim on behalf of uh, of Joseph uh, the Third and uh, the reorganized church. Now, um, D. Michael Quinn would have us at least believe that Brigham Young uh, might have thought that for a while, that he might have had Well, yeah, there, there's evidence. I mean, that, that's what muddies the claim even further, is because there's evidence that uh, Brigham Young, and, and, and the more and more evidence is coming out, and especially with this new uh, uh, multi-volume work that just recently been published by Signature Brooks, uh, which indicates that um, Brigham Young in public sermons, you know, even made the statements that uh, that uh, you know uh, holding out the possibility that uh, that uh, uh, either Joseph the third or one of the other sons maybe David Hiram which uh, should maybe come forth would, would at a future date come forth as the uh, as as the new prophet seer and revelator I mean there was that there was that he he never completely uh, discounted that on and uh, and so there, there 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 are indications that you know because Joe, because Brigham Young uh, he 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 was not actually sustained as uh, president of the you know as as prophet seer and revelator of the Utah Church until 1847 but even after that uh, there are indications that he was uh, holding out the possibility that uh, uh, one of the sons of Joseph Smith would would indeed become president of the church. And, and actually, that was common in a lot of the different movements. So James Strang also said that one day, um, you know, one of the sons of Joseph Smith might be, you know, become his successor, uh, Lyman White, who had an, a very successful colony. He had been an apostle, and he had a very successful colony of Mormons in Texas, believed that, um, you know, Joseph Smith III would be the prophet. Um, the Alphaeus Cutler, who also had a... Um, branch of the church, uh, his own church, the Cutlerites, he and uh, George Miller, who had both kind of gone with the uh, Utah Mormons on their way, on their trek west, but they stopped in in Iowa um, over this question of, his president, of a first presidency, in part, and because they didn't think that Brigham Young should have formed a first presidency, they thought that uh, in, in Lyman White's case and in George Miller's case, they felt that uh, that the successor was going to be Joseph III. So this was a commonly held idea, but like Newell says, there, it's not like there's any, we don't have the blessing, there's no documentation other than, than people saying that they, they heard it or they, you know, they believed that. The Lyman White story is actually pretty fascinating because isn't there documentation that, that Joseph Smith, while he was still alive, actually um, talked about the idea of moving the church to Texas? Yes, there's a there's a lot of evidence to indicate that 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 was a very very strong option that uh, that uh, Joseph Smith himself was considering, and he actually had been in contact and communication uh, with uh, Texas authorities because at that time Texas was an independent nation; it hadn't been yet annexed the United States, and that's what made it uh, attractive, as you know, that uh, literally the Mormons would be leaving the United States if they uh, could get a grant from Sam Houston, who was the president of the Texas Republican. And Joseph actually sent uh, a delegates down or, or, or sent representatives on envoys on behalf of the church to negotiate and, and discuss this possibility. In fact, one of the essays in our volume, uh, the essay by uh, Michael Scott Van Wagman, uh, specifically uh, discusses Lyman White and the Texas Auction of 1844, 
and it was truly a forgotten Mormon alternative. And, and that, and 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 it, it's a fast story because it it, uh, it it helped to give legitimacy to you know the the movement that uh, that White himself you know because he said uh, White claimed to his dying day that he was fulfilling the the the, the deep held wishes of. Uh, Joseph Smith, that the Mormons should emigrate to Texas. And Brigham hesitated for a few years before he excommunicated him, if I understand correctly. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it came it came at a later date. He, uh, he yeah, because <laughs> because there was a, a, a strong there there, there because White had, had made such a strong case, and and there was the uh, there was the uh, evidence to support uh, what uh, Joseph's intentions had been in that regard. So now, um, it's always been interesting to me to, about the saints that were left in Kirtland, because um, if, if I remember right, um, oh, what's his name, the, the witness of the, the, um, the, the Book Martin of Mormon. Harris. Martin, Martin Harris. Martin Harris stayed in Kirtland um, for quite a while, and I think he yeah. said something to the effect of, I didn't leave the church, the church left me. <laughs> what, what happened to those saints who were, who were left in Kirtland when the church sort of kind of dissolved in, uh, in Nauvoo? Well, so I think that um, I think it might have been David Whitmer who said it. Is he the one who said it? was it David Whitmer? Anyway, so I think a lot of people felt like that they didn't leave the church; the church left them. Um, so Martin Harris and a lot of the people, uh, Martin Harris and those folks are left in Kirtland. There remains a a um, community of uh, Book of Mormon believers of Mormon believers in Kirtland, and essentially what happens is is that everyone, anytime um, different organizations. Uh, would send missionaries through. They would usually be able to get all the old saints back together. They'd all meet in the temple. They'd all kind of declare themselves for the organization that had sent representatives, and they would start to organize and meet and things like that. So, so um, for example, James Strang came, went to Kirtland. He um, held a big conference in the temple. They gathered all the saints back together, including Martin Harris and everybody else. And they organized a new stake, a new stake presidency, all that kind of thing. And then, you know, and then he left. He went back to wherever he was, and, and they would take the newspaper from him for a while. And then after a while, that, that would break down and somebody else would come through. And so there were, um, I think, uh, probably three different, three or four different organizations that uh, kind of arose and, and uh, fell in Kirtland uh, until ultimately uh, the reorganization sent um, people there and the people more or less that were left mostly joined the RLDS church and then ultimately the temple uh, was reclaimed by the RLDS church and they still own it today, the community price. Uh, but the same thing happened with the Whitmers in Missouri. So a lot of the witnesses that had gotten left in Missouri, the Whitmers continued to believe in um, kind of an old style of Mormonism. So David Whitmer, um, John Whitmer had a, had a, a church which they called the Church of Christ after the um, original name of the church. Uh, they, they, the leaders of the church were the first elder and the second elder the same way. Those were Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith's titles in the original church, and they received revelations using seer stones. Wow. Uh, so they had conti- they continued to kind of want to embrace a um, a version of Mormonism that was the version that they that they had first encountered. So we spoke of the reorganized church. Um, Retaining control of the Kirtland Temple, um, most Mormons know that um, the uh, Salt Lake branch doesn't hold all the temple 
um, all the property in Missouri. And it's it's kind of um, sort of divided up between more than one organization. Maybe we can talk about the organizations that sort of hold land there on the old temple site in Independence. Well, yeah, there's a, there's there's a whole uh, there's a whole array of groups, and and that that's what makes Independence such a a fascinating place. It it it's uh, it was designated as the um, as the old gathering place where where um, you know in the early church by Joseph Smith is where the saints were going to gather in preparation for the millennium and the second coming, and so that's what gives Independence such a special uh, significance, and so. Uh, that's why so many of the, uh, you know, all, all of the major groups and, and a number of the minor ones have established uh, congregations or headquarters or whatever uh, in and around uh, independence. Uh, the Cutler-Rice, you've, uh, you've got the Temple Lot Group, which is across the street from uh, where the um, uh, RLDS uh, Temple is, and you've got, of course, the Utah Mormons who have uh, a visitor center that's located adjacent to uh, the RLDS, and of course, the RLDS also have their uh, their world headquarters uh, there, their auditorium and their world headquarters, as well as their uh, temple. And then on the other side of the street, you've got a, a group that is broken off, uh, uh, which is uh, under under the direction of, of, of Fred Larson, and they're known as the uh, God help me out, John, the, uh, the, the Remnant Church the remnant, of Jesus Christ of Latter Church, yeah. The, the, the remnant church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and they're one of the uh, numerous groups that have broken off from the uh, RLDS or the Community of Christ. Much of the uh, schism or or heavy heavy fragmentation of, of schism within the, the RLDS or Community of Christ was engendered in large measure by the uh, reorganized church uh, granting uh, you know ordaining women to the priesthood starting in the mid-1980s, and that's kind of an interesting story, uh, and, and, and that's, that's also discussed in, in our, our, our volume by, uh, to some extent, by uh, David Howlett. He, he talks about these various uh, groups, and that, that's where a major schism, sort of analogous to what happened in Utah Church when, uh, the, in 1890, the manifesto was brought forth saying that the church would no longer practice polygamy. That that engendered, um, you know, the the schisms which emerged as as uh, leading to you know the various fundamentalist groups, fundamentalist Mormon groups. We talked about the temple site, but there were actually supposed to be twenty four temples, if I remember correctly. Um, but they did right. lay a cornerstone. Who who controls the cornerstone lot? Well, the original. So they have an original dedication ceremony, and they do it on a plot of land that the early Mormons don't actually even own yet. But that later is purchased by the first presiding bishop of the church, and it's a 63-acre uh, parcel, approximately a little bit more than that, that's on the um, old Santa Fe Trail, just barely west of what was then Independence. is now right more or less just in downtown Independence. Um, and so of that parcel, um, that's split into four pieces, uh, and well, three three different churches own part of that. So the Community of Christ, the LDS Church, and then the Church of Christ Temple Lot. The Church of Christ Temple Lot has the, um, the most important aspect of it, or the most important part, which is the traditional spot of the dedication uh, that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon and everybody did for the very first of those 24 temples. So the temples would fill up most of that um, 
that parcel according to the plan, uh, but the very first one that was going to be dedicated uh, is on, it's traditionally, we don't know for sure, but anyway, it's traditionally the, the little part of it that the Church of Christ Temple Lot um, owns. And so that group, the Church of Christ Temple Lot, is a, in, uh, a group of Midwestern um, Mormons from Illinois originally, who after, um, after the majority of the saints have gone um, to Utah, they are opposed to polygamy, so they so they didn't you know, they didn't want to go with Brigham Young. They are, were also opposed to polygamy with James Strang, uh, but they are also opposed to the idea of lineal succession. So they do not think that um, a son of Joseph Smith should be the head of the church. And so after the reorganization um, happens, they they themselves reorganize themselves as a church of Christ, as the Church of Christ, and they. Um, one of the old apostles, Johnny Page, um, ordains one of their members, Granville Hedrick, to be um, prophet seer revelator over the church. And he then has a revelation that they should go back to independence and reclaim the temple lot, which they do in the 1870s. The whole temple lot um, area is really fascinating because it seems like there's so many branches in such a small, limited area there. Do most of the branches that kind of reside in independence or around the temple lot, do they look at the mainstream LDS church as kind of the big bully? I mean, because if, if the mainstream LDS church can buy and renovate most of downtown Salt Lake, couldn't they just go over there and just, and just buy up all that property? Or has there been, like, any problems that, they've, that those little branches have had of keeping their property against the LDS church? Well, like, obviously the... the the temple parcel itself is already owned by people, and I mean the LDS Church owns its own share of it. Um, it would be impossible to buy it uh, from anybody because nobody would sell. So the Temple Lot Church absolutely will not ever sell the Temple Lot to anybody under any circumstances, and they also have it as kind of an article of faith that they will not mortgage it. They won't, you know, it's not going to be in danger. Um, they're still quite viable. They probably have they have a few thousand. Uh, members, maybe I think even including international members, maybe six thousand members. So they're going pretty well, pretty strong, and I don't, we don't expect that they'll uh, peter out anytime soon. So I think they'll, they're just fine. Um, in terms of like the immediate vicinity, almost all of that land is owned by the Community of Christ. A lot of those houses and everything like that. So it would, they would again, they would have to sell it to the LDS Church. Obviously, Church has more more money than anybody by by far. Um, but I don't think that they've had any particular uh, goal of buying in independence itself. Almost all of the LDS purchasing is, I think, takes place north of Kansas City, up by where the new LDS temple is going to be, Kansas City. So it's, that's in near um, near Liberty, where Liberty Jail was. With yeah, Joseph Smith. yeah. The, the largest purchases that the Utah the Utah Latter Day Saint Church has made is a, has been up in yeah up in around far west, and that's where they. Where, where Joseph Smith was going to build another temple. You know, in fact, they laid the four cornerstones there uh, at uh, Far West, and they uh, and they and, and the LDS Church owns uh, quite a large, significant pieces of the land. And of course, as, as John said, they own the Liberty Jail. You know, the, the Liberty Jail and, and that as well. And so, uh, uh, and 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 part of that is because uh, you know the um, uh, our our LDS 
have had that. They, they've got some land up there. They've got a small congregation, a small church, and some land that's across the street, uh, immediately across the street from the uh, temple site at far west. But I don't think they've got much more land than that, do they? You know more about that than I do, John. Not in far west. Well, I mean, obviously, yeah. the um, Community of Christ also has the, the Hans Mill Massacre site. Anyway, but then the LDS yeah. Church has yeah. Adam on Diamond. So there's, anyway, yeah, the, right. I would say on the question, though, that you had about... Um, being seen as a bully or people, I mean, what what all of the smaller churches always have to deal with is when they're going around and, um, you know, explaining or sharing the restored gospel and evangelizing, going on missions and things like that, they always have to, you know, when they're saying, you know, talking about the Book of Mormon, they always have to say, Here, you know, yes, we believe in the Book of Mormon, no, we're not the Mormons or whatever, we're not the members of the LDS, LDS church. So everybody <laughs> always has to, yeah, I mean, it is a complicated thing that you have to explain to everybody yeah, uh, yes i want to share the book of mormon with you but i'm not you know we're not i'm not the mormons or whatever you know how do you that's, explain that's that been so. the uh, big problem with the particularly the the uh, rlds now the community of christ in fact that's one of the reasons why the community of christ as uh, has has changed its name because uh, they they were always in the position of saying we are not Utah Mormons, even though we have a name that sounds very much like the Utah Mormon name, the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and 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 they're making a concerted effort to, uh, you know, to 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 uh, make their identity clear. Of and it's kind of a fine line because on the one hand they 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 uh, they want to identify themselves as separate and distinct from the Utah Church. But there's also that element within the the community of Christ, which uh, you know there's still a part of that original Latter Day Saint tradition. Because uh, until uh, uh, up until very recently, uh, the leader of the uh, uh, RLDS Church was always a descendant of Joseph Smith. Uh, up until uh, W. Wallace Smith, he was uh, yeah W. Wallace Smith was was Wallace B. Smith. Wallace B. Smith, I'm sorry, Wallace B. Smith was the last direct descendant. He was a great, he was the great grandson of Joseph Smith, the prophet. And uh, so they, they, they've got that lingering identity, and then they still believe that the Book of Mormon is, is, is you know, is canonized, is, is canonized scripture within the uh, community of Christ. So they still have the tradition of, of, of the Book of Mormon as well as the Doctrine and Covenants. And uh, you know the, the, those are two two elements that are all also within the Utah both both canonized scripture as as with the Utah Church, and so uh, it, it's this dilemma of of, of trying to differentiate the Utah Church while at the same time uh, dealing with the fact that they're part of the same tradition. Well, if I'm not mistaken, their view of things like the Book of Mormon uh, these days is much more nuanced than the yes, like branch. Yeah, they, 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 they consider it, I mean, it, it, there, 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 there isn't a consistent position within the uh, community of Christ because there's, there's a much more diversity of opinion. There's a greater uh, tolerance for uh, differing views and, and a diversity of opinion uh, among members of the reorganized church or community of Christ, as it's now known, than among uh, Utah Mormons. They... Uh, and that's part, partly due to the fact that they've always had uh, this membership that has has a tradition of kind of being descending, being uh, you know coming out of a descending tradition going back to uh, their formation in 1860. 
So moving west to Utah, I, I know there was some pressure by some individuals in the church who wanted to move on to California. Was there ever any sort of schismatic movement that moved west further? Well, uh, there's one interesting case. I, I live out here in California, and that, that involves the case of Sam Brannan, who's kind of a colorful, controversial figure. He actually arrived in San Francisco, which was actually known as Yoga Buena, back in uh, in 1846, right after uh, it was annexed to the United States as a result of the Mexican-American War. He, he lands in San Francisco with a group of, of around 200 Latter-day Saints, and over and, and he arrives there before you know a, a year before. Uh, Brigham Young arrives out in Utah in 1847, and actually Brannon wanted Joseph or wanted Brigham Young to uh, bring the Saints out to California. It would be a much more ideal and congenial place for the church to exist out in California. And he actually travels back. He backtracks along the. Uh, he goes backwards along the uh, trail to California, along the California Trail, and uh, meets up with uh, Brigham Young. Uh, somewhere in Wyoming, and here he is trying to talk. Uh, Brigham Young said, hey, you don't want to stop in, in, in the Great Basin or in Utah. Why don't you come on out to California? There's so much more going on out there. And, and Brigham Young, of course, uh, he, he rejects that because he says, if we go out to California, there's all, there's, all these, there's all these non-Mormons that are already out there. And this is even before the discovery of gold in 1848. He says that we're going to run into the same problems that we ran into uh, in uh, Illinois, in, 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 in Missouri, in Ohio, we're gonna, we're, we'll end up being driven out of there, whereas in the, in, in the Great Basin we'll be able to establish a kingdom where, where not even the devil will be able to drive us out. You know, that, I'm paraphrasing uh, what, what, uh, what uh, Brigham Young says. And so he, he rejects Sam Brannon's overtures to bring, you know, because Brannon is the leader of those Mormons who came across. They came by ocean. They, they went around... Uh, Cape, you know, they went around Cape Horn, around South America. It was a perilous voyage that they took in 1846. And, and as I say, uh, Brannon really wants uh, the rest of the saints to come out to California. And, and, and uh, uh, as I say, uh, Brigham Young uh, rejects that. Brannon goes back, and he becomes uh, he becomes a very wealthy man. He only leaves the Utah or the Mormon, Mormonism and, and becomes California's first millionaire and, and uh, becomes very secular in his behavior. <laughs> Now, when the Mormons colonized, they colonized all the way down through the corridor, down to Las Vegas into San Bernardino. Yes, that came later. That that came, and that was under the leadership of, of people like Amasa Lyman and Charles Rich. That that colonization comes as as a result of uh, you know Brigham Young has this grand vision of the state of Deseret, which will also give them a port in the San Diego, Los Angeles area. If, if Brigham Young and Bible had his way. All of that would have been part of, uh, of, of Mormon-controlled territory, and, and that, that's his original conception when he sends uh, uh, that colonization of the San Bernardino, of, um, and that becomes the second largest uh, settlement for a while uh, next to uh, uh, Salt Lake City, and then that, of course, is abandoned in, you know, when the Utah War comes along, and, and by that time, California is formed, and Utah, it, it, you know, the, the territory of Utah is much smaller than the original state of Deseret, which uh, Brigham Young wanted to have, you know that the original state of Deseret would have would have covered pretty much uh, all of all of California, Nevada, a large swath of, of New Mexico, um, you know, what today be Arizona, up into 
call right. It, it, it contained. It, it was a huge swath of land, and if Brigham Young could have pulled it off, he would have had really a huge piece of real estate. And to me, that seems more in line with what Joseph was hinting at before he died. You know, he talked about controlling the the, the West with the hundred and fifty thousand troops. Yeah, yeah, that was in a way. Yeah, it was. It was in many ways a fulfillment of of of, of Joseph's original vision. Well, let's let's look at. Uh, I'm sure that most of our our audience is probably thinking, "What about the FLDS?" Since a lot of times the FLDS is in the news. What what about that schism? Can you guys talk about that a little bit? Did it start when uh, the mainstream LDS Church broke its ties with polygamy in 1890? Yeah, it, that the, the the genesis of that yeah that's when the genesis of it uh, comes about. Actually, the people that become involved with uh, the whole fundamentalist Mormon movement. It you know as far as the FLDS, it wasn't reformed. You know, there wasn't formally uh, what is known as as a fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That wasn't actually formed as a formal church, actually, until the 1990s, believe it or not. But but as far as fundamentalist Mormonism, that goes back, actually, to, to the Manifesto of 1890. And uh, they, there's a claim among the people that are adherents to the uh, fundamentalists that, uh, that John Taylor had a revelation in 1887, in which he indicated that uh, that uh, you know the, the mainline church was going to uh, was going to abandon polygamy, and that uh, in order to follow the commandments of God, the practice of polygamy would have to have to continue because after all, it was it was canonized in section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and so um, the, uh, the the genesis of that starts, and 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 but the actual. Uh, formal formation of uh, specific uh, de- definable movements. It, it evolved slowly during the 1930s and the 1940s, and then you get you, you know the, the two major uh, groups that are formed are uh, is eventually there's a group under the leadership of uh, of uh, Rulon Allred, and then there's then there's the emergence of, of another group under under uh, Leroy Johnson, a group that uh, had their headquarters down. In uh, what is what then was known as Short Creek, now known as Colorado City, and so there, there were two uh, major uh, uh, manifestations of it: that the All Red Group, which primarily was centered around the Salt Lake Valley, and then the uh, the, the Short Creek or call related the Colorado City Group, which is down in Arizona and Utah, Hillsdale, uh, and uh, uh, Colorado City. So how big of a factor was polygamy in, in the wide scheme of the schisms within Mormonism, really? Pardon? How, I mean, as far as uh, certain doctrines or teachings within Mormonism, do you think polygamy was the most contributing factor within, you know, break-offs and stuff, even from when Joseph yeah, yeah. Smith was still with, alive? With regard to the fundamentals, yes, of course. It, it was it was primary, but there were other teachings that they brought forth, which uh, which uh, they felt that the uh, mainline Utah Mormon Church was uh, departing from, for instance, a, a sense of communitarianism, the, you know, the, the communal, the holding of property by the larger community. That that That's also a very important uh, uh, cornerstone of what is the fundamentalist movement today, and the other the other strong belief is a sense of the uh, approaching uh, millennium or apocalyptic uh, belief that the end of the world is is 
is not far off that. That's another tenet. And then there's a racial component, too. They, the, you know, after the revelation of, eight, of, of 1978, granting blacks the priesthood, they, they, they strongly believe in the inherent inferiority. They, they have a strong sense of, of uh, inherent inferiority or of, of, of black people and, in fact, of all, pretty much all dark-skinned people. That, that there's that strong racial or racialist or racist uh, component. And uh, that 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 has been emphasized, particularly since 1978. So, uh, but but uh, the the practice of plural marriage is certainly you know a keystone. But there's these other factors, and they feel like they're they're actually practicing uh, pure the 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 old time Mormonism as practiced by the 19th century uh, Mormons prior to the Manifesto. What I find kind of interesting about these groups is. Instead of having you know like a huge schism and a break, especially in the first half of the twentieth um, century, they sort of lived in the shadows, and often yeah, and they, yeah, and that's very true. And in fact, uh, that that to some extent, there are still uh, uh, what you would call closet polygamists that still uh, kind of live on both sides of the street. They were they were they, were, they considered themselves members of the LDS Church, uh, you know, the big church, and at the same time. Um, uh, Feel that practicing polygamy is 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 divinely sanctioned, and uh, and and it's almost like there's a subculture within mainstream Mormonism of those types of people. In fact, uh, again, referring to the to the to our uh, scattering the saints volume, uh, Craig L. Foster in his uh, um, examination of plural marriage uh, talks about uh, the persistence of plural marriage within mainstream Mormonism. And in fact, I I, I, I in fact one of my one of my ancestors, a, a great aunt. She entered into a post-manifesto marriage in the early 900s, and she was uh, uh, with, with somebody who was uh, a mainstream Latter-day Saint. Yeah, one, of the, um, one of the reasons why um, that all happened and why it was so slow to emerge was that it was a fundamental tenet of most fundamentalist Mormons that the LDS Church remained the church. So they, when they were in... Um, they were all, while they were out of communion with the church, it wasn't because it wasn't the church. It was that the church, itself, and they had their own different church. Uh, it was the LDS church was the church. It was simply in a condition of disorganization or disorder. And and what continued to exist was the kingdom and the priesthood. And so they would maintain uh, the gospel and the, and the priesthood. In Mormonism, the priesthood was established or restored um, you know, a year or so before the church was restored, so the priesthood obviously can exist without the church. So they continued to be um, led by priesthoods. And then it was only um, really much more recently, and I think it might, might have been timed, as Newell was saying, with the 1978 revelation or so, that, uh, that fundamentalist groups have started to decide, well, uh, in fact, the church is so far out of... You know, dis- so far into disorder that it's important to organize a new church, which then the the Short Creek group did by incorporating as the FLDS church. Um, and then I don't think though that I think that the uh, the, the larger group, the 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 um, one in Salt Lake Valley, the Apostolic United right. Brethren, I think that they all have not though organized as a church yet. They may still be maintaining that same that same view that the church is just in a condition of disorganization. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I interviewed um, a a member or one of the the officials of the All Red Group. They have a settlement up in in Montana, Pinesdale, Montana, and I I sat down and had 
long station with uh, his name was Jessup, and he was the principal leader of the uh, All Red group. And he says we still consider ourselves uh, a part of the big church, as he referred it to. He says we consider that they they have uh, strayed away from what we consider essential teachings, but we still look upon yeah. them as. Uh, as, as as a legitimate church, but we were hoping to bring about reform or change uh, from within. You know, even though we're we're, we're separate, they they, they uh, and, and and it's interesting because the uh, FLDS church, on the other hand, doesn't maintain that position. There, they 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 maintain that the uh, solid church is apostatized and, and 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 have nothing to do with. It. In fact, they they don't have anything to do with the. With any of the other groups, they consider themselves uh, the true um, uh, church, and their prophet, of course, is is Warren Jeff. Whereas uh, 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 the, uh, I, I think even 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 the uh, uh, what is known as the Centennial Park group, a group that is broken away from the FLDS and and uh, under the leadership of, 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 of a fellow by the name of Timson, they have their own community that's a little bit to the uh, south. And to the uh, west of Colorado City, and, and they, they 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 don't go quite as far as, as saying that we completely reject the Utah Church. Although they they tend to go a little bit further than what the All Red Group does in in in, in denouncing the uh, hetero what they consider the heresy or heretic behavior of the Utah Church or the main you know the big the LDS Church. And it seems that these guys constantly are um, infighting and you know we have like Ervil LeBaron and the the murders and right. singer and swaps and the the raids and it, it seems like they're they're constantly having trouble with the law yeah they 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 they're kind of the nut case in the uh, I mean the LeBarons I mean they, they you know Ervil LeBaron and and he was he was a pathologically violent and and there was a history of mental illness or mental instability within the LeBaron family itself and so they they're 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 considered sort of a loose cannon group, you know. They're and and they've actually fragmented into several <laughs> different groups. Not even you know within that one family can they even agree. And then of course there there the the other controversial one is the one down in. Um, well, I'm trying to think of uh, the one down down in Mantine. I'm trying to think of the uh, the TLC uh, Church. Yeah, the right, true, yeah. the true and living church of yeah, the true and living Jesus yeah, Christ the, of Saints of the Last Days. Yeah, yeah, that 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 group is is is, is engaged in some controversial uh, uh, kind of behavior that uh, and 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 then there's the Kingston group up in uh, uh, up in northern Utah that has had some issues as well. Yeah, the Kingstons are are kind of fascinating because they're um, they are right there in the heart of Zion. You know, right and bountiful, and they control a lot of property. A lot of right. If you get a bail bond in uh, Utah, you're probably dealing with a polygamist by and by. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they control. Yeah, they, 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 they're pretty flush with money. I mean, it's it's an interesting group. I've always been, you know, I, I haven't looked at that group uh, all that carefully. But what, what's fascinating is that they've had they've had uh, you know problems with uh, accusations of, of child abuse and stuff like that. But yet, on the other hand. Uh, they they have uh, they've been very sagacious and I guess very talented as as, as business entrepreneurs. Yes, that's and, my and also you know as a, as this you know as a example of you know this kind of modern adaptation of a cooperative owning of property and businesses and things like that. It was it was surprised I was surprised to learn that when um, members in the 70s members of the RLDS Church were working on on building 
in the New Zion community. They actually um, invited representatives from the Kingston Church out to advise them on how to have a successful, how to make a successful cooperative or whatever. I, mean, I was I was kind of wow. surprised that there's that kind of, because of, you know, of course the RLDS people have always been so um, you know opposed to polygamy. That was their number one thing. It was essentially the churches in a lot of ways founded by you know Emma Smith, who was a major opponent of um, polygamy, and yet um, I guess you got to you got everybody had to admit. The Kingstons know how to have a successful cooperative. So. <laughs> yeah, it shows that Mormonism makes strange bedfellows, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's terrible. Well, gentlemen, the the hour has flown by. Um, uh, it's been an interesting overview, and I know that we were just sort of scratching the surface. We didn't even get to the favor of the Godbeites. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I, I, they're, they're interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Godbeites and the Morrisites, we, we didn't even talk about them. And there's, uh, you know, major books and major work that's being done on, 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 on those groups. And, and they, of course, were, were uh, you know, schismatic groups in Utah even before the uh, major schism over polygamy in the late 19th century. And, yeah. <laughs> All right, so maybe we'll have to have you on again later and, and sort of explore these things in more detail. I think we just scratched the surface. We'd love to. Thank well, you much. Well, thanks. Newell and John, thanks again. Uh, let's see, your book is... Um, Scattering the, Scattering the Schism Within Mormonism. And, I mean, you can uh, the best place for people to get it is Amazon.com. So. We'll be sure to put that link on our website. So, Yeah, uh, like always, the links will be on our website, and the discussion continues there. And you can um, call and leave a message at 801-906-6722 or leave an uh, email at mail at mormonexpression.com.